Hi, listeners. We're prefacing this episode with a content warning for sexual violence, addiction, and ableism. Hello, and welcome to JK It's Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish bestlies discuss mostly YA fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. And I haven't written a plot summary, but I will do one on the fly. <laughs> you can do it. Crooked Kingdom. We are finally back in Ketterdam, reading the second uh, book in the Six of Crows duology by Lee Bardugo. It was a long time ago that we talked about Six of Crows, right? forever ago it feels like i don't know what episode that was but i will find out (laughs) (laughs) anyway we are back with kaz and inej and nina and wylan and jesper and matthias even if we don't care about him that much and we are basically back in ketterdam inej has been kidnapped by van eck that was the big cliffhanger at the end of six of crows and they are oh and Kuwait. Yes. There's a lot of machinations and plotting and violence and shenanigans and I'm excited to dig into it. That was the most excellent summary I think I have ever provided. Yes. It was episode twenty two when we talked about Six of Crows, which doesn't seem that long ago episode number wise, since this is episode twenty nine, but that was all the way back in June and it is now almost the end of November. Before we get to our initial reactions, we just want to, um, I don't even know how to do this. How does self-promotion work? It is so uncomfortable. I don't know. I just basically go on Twitter and say nothing about the podcast, but things about everything else. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to talk to us about all the things, you can join our Patreon if you give anything, $5 a month or more, we have a Discord, which is basically like Slack, but for fun. And it's political, it's queer, there's baking and knitting and lots of other things, memes. So we want to talk to you off the air too. Initial reactions. I love, 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 love this book. I think Bardugo did a great job with such a large cast of characters, which I think would be really hard to balance. A lot of the times I did want to see more from Kaz's perspective, but I think it's just because he's my fave. But yeah, I like this book. I think I like Six of Crows better, but I still really like this book. (laughs) Shocked. Really? I don't know. There's so much more going on in Six of Crows. I guess. It was like super heisty and like i don't know i liked it i like the the culmination of it all in this book but we were in ketterdam for so long i was like when are we leaving (laughs) (laughs) oh wait never yeah never what did you think this was my first time rereading crooked kingdom and you know when you really like a book after the first read but then you fall head over heels when you read the book again that definitely happened to me Time to talk about all things world building in Through the Wardrobe. 
So I want to start with talking about chosen families, which I think comes up a lot in both Six of Crows, but more so in Crooked Kingdom as we see more of the backstory with Wylan and Jesper and Kaz and Inej and kind of, I guess, Matthias and Nina as well. Although Nina, I'm guessing, is going to go off and back to her Grisha family and King of Scars because I'm pretty sure she's in that book. Um, but I really appreciated the the focus on chosen families and how you're inherited family your hereditary family can be super terrible and you can just like let them be out of your life I really appreciated that personally I think chosen families are much more important than hereditary families I like that you started off the world building discussion with this topic because it does seem like the chosen family is more important than the geographical space of home right Yes. I think it's also appropriate that we're talking about this at we are both uh, just on fall break, not Thanksgiving break because fuck colonialism, but correct. it's coming into the holiday season where a lot of us have some, mm, I don't know how to say interesting maybe because it's my favorite catch-all word, relationships yeah. with our um hereditary families and so this is I guess just our little reminder at the top to take care of yourself listeners and set those boundaries if you need to yeah and like maybe don't ask people if they're like going home or you know what they're going to be doing with their families because everyone doesn't have a family like a hereditary family and a place to go so um I always find that kind of like oh what do you tell people when you're like well actually I don't have a relationship with my family so how do you explain that to them to strangers who are basically like what's your relationship with your family and how are you spending your time with them so also a reminder to like mind your own business mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would imagine that those conversations also then spiral into the other person talking to you feeling uncomfortable and then you having to make the other person feel comfortable again even though all you did was just give them information that's true. Yeah. And I'm sure it depends on the person for, cause, because for me, I'm like, oh, I'm not in contact with my family. So I'm going to stay here and be with my cat. And also I don't celebrate Thanksgiving. <laughs> so, you know, I don't care. But for some people, that's like really hard to do. And you should respect people's boundaries. Um, we see a, that money is not enough to make a person happy. We see this with a lot of the characters. Money is like a big deal in this world because it, and I think we'll talk about this more when we get to class, of course, because all things are intersectional. But um, like money is a big part of Ketterdam. Like everything is based on like this capitalistic weird society because there's like also the Council of Tides and the like the Mercher Council or whatever they are. But we also see like Wylan has a lot of money. It doesn't make him happier to have that. And Van Eck is like a trash person. He has all the money and he's still like a piece of shit. So money's not everything. We are in Ketterdam the whole time. We talked about, we mentioned this briefly at the top. But I do think that we got to see different parts of Ketterdam than we did before because we are... Um, I think getting a, a closer look not just at the barrel and the lid or like the we see the university part of the 
um, city. We also see like the silos in the warehouse part of the district. And then that also gives us access to the like the Reapers barges and the body men that we didn't Mm -hmm. really see as much except for in Kaz's flashbacks in Six of Crows. So I thought that that was oh, and we saw the graveyard too on the island. I forget what it's called. Mm, uh, The Black Veil. Yes. Yes. That's the one. Um, so I thought that it was, we weren't traveling throughout this novel and that that was okay because the intrigue of the plot kept things interesting. And we also got to see all these, like a quote unquote, like immigrant communities, because I don't really know who is like, who are the original people of Ketterdam, but we see like a little Ravka and like, they have like all these small communities of like people who are immigrants coming from other countries to come and find work there. And I really enjoyed that part of the story to see like, oh, there is a place that Nina could hypothetically go and this is where her people would be. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting and kind of how we see things sometimes in really big cities in the United States where there's like, uh, what do they call Oh, like Chinatown or Little Italy in New York City. Are you talking about diaspora? Yeah. 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 So I thought that was cool. We also learn about this really weird thing where uh, Kiawe is is able to sell himself into an indenture, indenturedom, indentured. I don't know what the correct word is, but I would say this indentured servitude. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And (laughs) I'm like, what is the word? Um, But this was just like mind blowing to me because I'm like, how? Like, how is this a thing? Like, what? I I was just like shocked and appalled and like so angry. It does strike me as like the epitome of this religious devotion to Mm -hmm. capitalism and money. um, And that like, the ultimate value of a person like selling your own indenture is almost like like it's protected under law because it's in their religion I guess sacred or something I don't get it yeah yeah I thought it was really weird and it but it was like such a big part of the novel hinged on this uh, like on this plot line like on this selling of oneself that I was also just like wait how does this because I guess technically they don't have they're not supposed to have slaves in the city people are just indentured which is just a different way of explaining slavery (laughs) in my mind because like they can't afford to get out of it so it was just a really weird thing that I wish we would have had a little more um like I wish we would have gone to a little more in depth because this was just like mind blowing to me. It was just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it would be curious to see if there if Bardugo will come up with any like histories, I guess, of these different mm-hmm. of the Grishaverse and so that we could see how Ketterdam evolved and how this religion essentially took off and then shaped the rest of relationships and how they work in Ketterdam. Yeah. Hopefully she doesn't just feel like backgrounds of real life people like jk rowling did so of like marginalized groups dumbledore was gay the whole time okay yeah well and like the stealing of like uh indigenous people's histories for the united states histories of magic that's right that's right systems so i'm just like god don't be a trash person <laughs> Mm-mm. 
And finally, Nikolai is back. That was exciting. I mean, I knew the whole time that Sturmhound or whatever his other person's name is, that was who that was. But I was just like, huh, I miss Nikolai. <laughs> He's so cool. <laughs> I thought that was very smart of Bardugo to put him in because it bridges the gap then to, to King of Scars. Yes. Which is, we also haven't read. It's coming, listeners. It's coming. She says that, but I don't actually know if it's on the list for later this season. <laughs> we'll get around to it eventually. I want to read it. Nicol- <laughs> Nikolai's my favorite. I know. He's my favorite from the Grisha verse for sure, but mostly because all the other options are Alina and what is it, Mal? And I'm just like, you two are terrible. I don't like either of you. <laughs> Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. So Jesper realizes that some of the things he's been doing, like always being able to make a shot because he's like a gunslinger kind of, were actually part of his Grisha powers, which I did not see coming for some reason. I feel really silly for not realizing that. But I thought that was really cool to see like, even though Jesper hadn't like, he's not the most strong Grisha, but he's been using his powers all along. And I thought that was really cool. Absolutely. I I thought that the flashbacks developed that really well when he was mm-hmm. talking about his time on the farm in Novia Zem with his mom and how she ran the farm and was always using her powers in substantive, but what people might see as like small, inconsequential ways. But in reality, like they made her powerful because we know at this point that if Grisha don't use their powers, then it becomes a problem for them. They become like sickly, etc. Or like Jesper, the implication is that that's the root of like his gambling problem, which we will talk about later. And I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. But um, I also liked the distinction that we get with Jesper's backstory between Grisha, which is the Ravka conception of these like magical abilities versus Zoa, which is the Zemini for like, iteration I guess and mm-hmm. I think it's it's the same type of power but used to different ends and so um Zoa means gifted I think yeah and or or blessed I can't remember which exactly but I just thought that her his Jesper's mother Aditi her relationship to her magic was just like a more embodied kind of aligned understanding compassionate like beautiful accepting version rather than like power hungry or um about performance for example right well and we see that the part of the reason i guess not part of the reason the reason jester's mom died was trying to save someone using her powers because she could heal people who were sick and she like took the sickness on i guess accidentally mm-hmm. um so we do see magic being used, I think, in a more kind way through Jesper's mom than we saw in Grishaverse or even and like in in the Grishaverse, I think the magic is so much more violent. It's used to like take over places and control people. And through Jesper's mom we see it used yeah, in a more kind way, in a in a way that we if if we had powers, all of us would like to think that's the way we would use them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that it's important that she uses them 
in the in those like smaller ways yeah um that are exerting their own power mm-hmm. and display actually immense wisdom i had this thought when jesper was talking to kuwe about using the stalks of the jirta plant and not just the flower and he was talking mm-hmm. about how his mom used them used the stalks of the plant for like uh balms and other sort of remedies and it it just reminded me that like the way that the magic is utilized often shapes our understanding of it to begin with. And let me try and explain that. So like, like you were saying in the Grisha verse, the magic is essentially all of the Grisha are recruited to fight in the, the second army, right? First mm-hmm. army. I can't remember. Yeah. Second army. Sec- second army. Yeah. Who knows? Um, and, so so it takes this more bellicose form versus the other, like the Zoa, which is like refusing to even engage with the idea of using your magic for like military aims and instead doing it in all of these like ways. We have, I'm going to, I put this under magic instead of uh, world building, but we have proof of an afterlife in this story, which was, I don't, I don't know how to feel about it because we get it through Matthias. So I'm like, does that mean gel is real and that is the right way? And I don't know that that's how Bartugo meant it to be. But we do have that. Matthias is dead, which I'm like, man, don't really care because <laughs> um, I don't really like him that much. But yeah, he gets his afterlife and he's running around with the with the big wolves, the whatever that the Fjordans have, so yeah. It's real for him at least. Yes. Which I think is also well, yeah. I, I think that's something that you sometimes see with people who have like those near death experiences and people who have studied them. They do see things, but there's like all this neurological things actually going on in their brains that can make them see things that mm-hmm. maybe aren't real, but maybe that doesn't mean they're not real to you. <laughs> that's, Perception. That's what Dumbledore would reality. say. <laughs> just yes he would just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's not real i mean sometimes that means it's not real but <laughs> <laughs> whatever <laughs> um we know to take dumbledore's advice with a grain of salt oh my god yeah he's a terrible person he's basically like let me raise this kid to die <laughs> so i don't know how i feel about dumbledore he's a complicated character we also see both the faked council of tides and the real council of tides the real council of tides i am concerned because they kind of were pretty threatening to kaz at the end and i'm like are we gonna get another book with kaz like i'd be very excited about that but i'm not sure he's gonna be able to like take on these like all-powerful grisha in the way that he thinks he would be able to (laughs) I think especially because he operates so much of his power comes from information mm-hmm. and knowing things that others don't know. And he doesn't have any information on the Council of Tides. So that power differential is pretty stark. Yeah. I mean, maybe Inej, the Wraith, would be able to figure something out about them. But I think she even she would have a difficult time with that. Plus, she's got better things to do on her abolitionist mission. Yeah, I yeah, I I mean, we'll probably talk about that later, I guess. But I really love her and her, like, what she wants to do and the ending of the book. It was all so perfect. I just loved it. Wands away. Wands away.
Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in our segment, Get Me Kylo Ren. So on page 62, Inej says about Van Egg, No, you're just the man who sits idly by, congratulating yourself on your decency while the monster eats his fill. At least a monster has teeth and a spine. And I really appreciated this take because I do think sometimes... One, I think Van Eck is worse than even Inej realized at the time. Like, he's got his hands in all these different industries and things that she doesn't know about yet. But I do think sometimes a villain doesn't necessarily need to be violent, like physically violent, or be making these huge moves. Sometimes just allowing things to happen makes you a villain. And that's what we kind of see with both Van Eck and... I think the Mercher Council or whatever they're called, they're kind of just allowing all these things to happen in Ketterdam, like the slave trade. That's like the underlying slave trade. Um, And obviously what happened with Kaz and they're not taking any responsibility. So I really appreciated this look, this view that a person can be a villain, even though they're not the one like moving the action forward. I definitely agree with you. And part of that, I think it's kind of serendipitous that we are recording this episode right after the House um, hearings about the the impeachment inquiry just wrapped up. And I was kind of making this connection. Maybe it's just because it's salient for me the second time reading around reading of um, Van Eck as a Trumpian figure where he's like being rich like having a rich family is literally the only, I guess, qualification in enormous scare quotes that this person has. Right. And it's actually not even really that wealthy. There's like not a lot of that capital is liquid. It's just like the appearance of wealth that's most important. And then like everything becomes all of the other side quests shall we say of this main villain character serve the purpose of gaining more power and more which in this case is wealth is growing growing more wealth what do you think about the comparison i think it's definitely there especially when you think about the fact that van eck doesn't believe that kaz can outsmart him and i don't think intelligence is everything like book intelligence you know Mm -hmm. but kaz has like this like I think I think we would say like street smarts you know um and and I think we see that with you know Trump where he doesn't think anyone could be smarter than him he's the smartest person ever to have been born even though that's obviously not true in any sense of the word smart um so I think we also see this in the way that people will underestimate someone especially young people because Kaz is a young person um and you know Young people have a lot of power. We know a lot of things that like old people, you know, boomers, they they can barely work a computer. Like (laughs) who makes phone calls and is like, let me put this on a, on the phone. Like who, who's listening to your phone calls? You have no idea. Like it's, some of it is just like, oh my God, I'm just like, whatever. Don't, don't, you can't scheme in front of people. Like your staff is going to, you know, the whole thing is just, uh, just ridiculous it is are you talking about the impeachment inquiry that's what uh, you're talking yes. about yeah yes yeah 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 the entire but thing. even like ugh. 
it is ridiculous, but I love your generational comparison because I think that's super appropriate for this novel or this series in general and the essential like the two like forces that are battling it out, right? You have the young uh rebellious youth young youth. Yes, of course. The youth are young. My yes, bad. They that are. was asinine. Um <laughs> you have this like yeah this these like youthful rebel scum, basically. And the establishment super wealthy, like basically boomer class. Yep. Of yep, yep. White rich people. Yeah. It's like so appropriate to now. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> uh 2020 cannot be over fast enough i'm like can we just get this over with i am so inundated with too much right now it's just information overload i think we could just (laughs) if we could just move the needle that'd be great yeah i i want a shorter election season like other countries do like where the campaigning can't happen for two years because like i'm already over it and i'm like i haven't even made a decision about who is my candidate because it's just it's too much I just need a shorter window of time. (laughs) There's a lot of time left. Lots of information. I know. A whole year. One more year. (laughs) I think my takeaway from the book about evil and villainy in general is that this series really like rotates around, rotates around like greed as the axis of evil to use like, George Bush's terrible phrase but that that does seem to be like the motivation behind what generates the most conflict in the book yeah and I think we see um the the dregs are obviously trying to gain wealth but more as a way to access freedom and resources that were not are not available to them if they don't have money so I think some I think people could look at this and say well the dregs are also greedy because they're trying to get like 30 million crudge or whatever the amount Kruger oh (laughs) that is not how I read it once (laughs) (laughs) um but (laughs) but I think that part of the problem is without wealth in the story but also we see this in real life you don't have access to the same resources and opportunities and that's all that the dregs want is the opportunity at for some of them freedom and for some of them to be able to go home or, you know, to fix mistakes that they've made with Jesper. Um, so yeah, I like that. Greed as a villain. Definitely. Onward magical listeners. Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, gender, ability, body, minds, etc., etc. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. Want to start with race? Let's do it. Actually, you have the first take on race. I do. (laughs) Wyland's experience of race um, stuck out to me the second time reading the book because he looks like Kuwe at this point in the story. And when they're back in Ketterdam, he's experiencing what like a person of color like Kuwe or Jesper would be experiencing in Kirch. And this is like a really big learning curve for him and especially given his privileged upbringing and he's like white as fuck. Um, so like a specific example is when Jesper's dad shouts at Wylan because he looks shoe 
And so he like shouts at them and asks if he speaks Kirch. So he assumes like ignorance or lack mm-hmm. of intelligence because of how a person looks. And that like if you yell at them, that will make them understand if they didn't know. <laughs> Major eye roll is, because no, yeah. that's not how that works. No, it's not. That's not how language works at all. <laughs> yeah, it is really interesting. I didn't pick up on this, so I'm glad that you brought it up because that must have been kind of a mind fuck for Wylan a little bit because you see it even sometimes he says he catches himself in a mirror and he's like, wait, like that's not me. Um, but his interactions with people are so different mm-hmm. because of how he looks, which is something he's never experienced before. Right. And I think it is something to keep in mind that like how we ident- like read ourselves versus how the rest mm-hmm. of the world reads us really does influence your experience in the world. Another thing race-related is that Nina doesn't realize Inej would have an issue with Ravka for similar reasons as to why Nina dislikes Fierda. Inej is racialized, obviously, um, as Suli, and Nina forgets that, I think, because of their proximity to each other, because they're always together. And I think it's kind of a good reminder for, you know, (laughs) I want to say, like, GWPs, but I'm also like, does that even exist? But like people who <laughs> can you <laughs> like explain white... the acronym? Oh yeah, for like good white people, you know, I would have voted for Obama three times if I could have white people. <laughs> 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 um, no, but you know, like pe- white people who are not racist or not outwardly racist. <laughs> um, but it's a good reminder for you know for white people, like just because you're in proximity to a person of color for. Um, doesn't mean that necessarily you should like it means that you should remember that that person is racialized even though you might be able to forget that person never forgets their race racialization or their marginalization Mm -hmm. and I think that goes not just for um, race but for gender identity and sexuality as well like just because you can forget about it doesn't mean the person who holds those marginalizations ever does because they don't ability coloniality lots of different yeah immigration status i the so the the problem or the criticism that anej has of ravka is that it doesn't treat the suli well at all correct right yeah okay. yeah and they're like similar to like um the romani people mm-hmm. which we talked about last episode yeah. and the racialization of nina i mean anej anej <laughs> So I want to talk about Matthias for a second, who is like the whitest of white in this story. So it seems weird to talk about him in race, but Whiteness I want to talk about how Matthias is race. Yeah, like I we got to talk about it. Uh, yes. But I want to talk about how Matthias is kind of like a reformed white supremacist. And I'm not going to lie. I wasn't all that upset when he dies because sometimes this narrative where we like focus the story, which is like, and this story isn't super like hyper focused because there are six people that we're getting perspectives of. But sometimes I get frustrated with these stories where we have to like center this narrative of like, oh, this is a white person who used to hate like POCs and now they've made a change. Like, let's give them um, like props for doing that. And I'm like, for what? For like meeting the bare minimum of not hating marginalized groups. Like to me, this is super frustrating. And one of the reasons I don't like Matthias and I'm not saying that people can't forgive these kind of people, but I'm just like, 
oh my god I don't care about Matthias like who cares he's a terrible person he has not like made up for that in any real way through this story to me I also wasn't that sad when he died I think your take of him as a reform white supremacist is exactly on point that is pretty much like exactly how the novel is like is I think it's a very appropriate analogy. I was mainly sad for Nina, I guess, when he died because right. I like Nina and yes. she likes him for some reason. And <laughs> I guess because I, she's also white. <laughs> yes, there you go. But I w- I guess we could say it's all it's like an inter, not species relationship, <laughs> but like you know, like race doesn't really function in the same way for Grisha and non Grisha since it's like become about skin color i guess in our empirical world mm-hmm. um but it is like across i don't know some sort of identity line that relationship is right for sure nina obviously thought that there was some redeeming part of it and it seems like that is like the last thing that matthias asks her when he's dying is it like go save other people who were like me Right. Which, like, is kind of like putting that burden on the... It is, it is putting that burden of education and redemption and forgiveness on the person who is experiencing... Who is, like, the marginalized right. one. For sure. Which is He's bullshit. Like, please do this free emotional labor. <laughs> and do it for me. Do it in remembrance yes. of me. Okay, great. Yeah. I would say that he's definitely not the most sympathetic or likable character necessarily, but... He did serve an important, like he has a, a purpose in the narrative. Like he provides this a venue for examining radicalization of young men and the toll that takes. Mm-hmm. And then also the aftermath, like the struggle of unlearning prejudice and learning new ways of making sense of the world. And I am not really that like invested in this ship or like, no, or anything like that. But I do think that like making him one of the however many different points of view was like a it was a nice little window without him like taking over the entire narrative and he obviously loves Nina and I understand and it's hard because I guess one of the problems sometimes with like cancel culture is that that we don't give people room to grow and change from their mistakes that they've made and so I kind of struggle with that where I'm like I don't care about Matthias. Like he did a bad thing. And, but you know, everyone doesn't have to be like me. Like I might not be that forgiving, but other people can be. if they want. Mm-hmm. So it, I understand that there should be room for like letting like people make those mistakes and we should let them grow from them. I definitely agree with that. And I struggle with that myself, like letting people do that. But sometimes in a book world, I'm like, I don't care about that. <laughs> like it's not yeah. real life. <laughs> but I also think that it's, there's okay for there to be consequences yes. for one's actions slash previous view. And it's okay to be like that discomfort is generative because there's this like parallel struggle of unlearning prejudice and then learning new ways of making sense in the world. And just because like that's this Germany, the journey of like a reformed white supremacist or whatever, just because like they're refo- they put reformed before white supremacists doesn't necessarily mean they're entitled to like other people's forgiveness or it doesn't mean that like it doesn't require forgiveness right. from marginalized people. 
Right. And the burden is on the marginalized groups to provide that forgiveness, which I think is frustrating to me because I'm, because it's just something that we do unless you're me. Cause I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think of like the judge who hugged the murderer. And I think we talked about that. Yeah, we did last time. Um, the Botham, Botham John's like murderer. Mind blowing to me. Yeah. And the brother and people, you know, going back and forth about whether that was okay. And really it's up to the person who has been wronged, but it's just like all the emotional labor is on the marginalized groups to provide forgiveness. And that is just so frustrating to me. And I'm just like, no. Shall we segue into class? So I feel like we talked about this a little bit last time when we talked about Six of Crows, where Gezen, who is a god, is tied to commerce, capitalism, and deals made in the Church of Barter. It's still pretty disgusting, the whole thing in Ketterdam, where, you know, basically capitalism is held up as, like, the pinnacle, like, as as a god, basically. So I just wanted to mention it again, because capitalism is trash, and I hate it. I mean, it's not that different from what we have going on in our empirical reality either. <laughs> no, not not at all. There is so much to say about class. Oh my gosh. Okay. I can't remember how much of this we actually discussed in the Six of Crows episode. <laughs> so there might be some repetition. But um, one of the things I, I thought that this novel does really well and this like Gazen god of commerce and Kirch being all founded around that is that it shows how like this worship of the market and like a market as being free and then we see all the machinations that operate behind the scenes like the merchant council is willing to like do all these inside deals and like insider training trading for van Eck and all of the like they're all well connected and they're meeting with investors and just ugh, it's just like all of the machinations behind the scenes, I really think, show that like a free market isn't free. It's the rich doing whatever the fuck they want to get richer while everyone else like lives in squalor. Yeah. And I think we talked about it last time because I remember at least once <laughs> linking to the prosperity gospel thing that John Oliver did. Um, but we see this again in Ketterdam where they're, they feel like, oh, if I'm making money, if I'm rich, then I'm doing right by Gezen. So... Like, that's the only way you become, like, if you're doing good things, then Gezen will um, provide you with more money. So, which, like, you know, feeds off of itself. So, yeah, very, like, ill. Matthias at one point reflects on money and it, like, asks these sorts of questions, like, is it freedom? Is it security? Is it obsession? And I think it is, like, all of those things, depending on your positionality. Right, because we see, like, Inej wants money so that she can get out of her contract with um, Tanta Helene. Mm-hmm. And no, um, Per Haskell. She... Oh, no, just for just for Inej, because she, she's, like, at the menagerie, and that person has, like, her... Oh, yeah, yeah, but then, like, but then her contract gets bought by the dregs. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right, okay, yeah, I forgot. Um but we see this as like a way of them securing freedom and Inej wants to take that money to like help, you know, break the wheel, get rid of the slave trade um, and like murder all those dudes, which I'm like, do that. That's that's a great way to spend your money. 
Kaz at one point says that Ketterdam was my education. And this I thought was a good reminder that there are plenty of different kinds of learning and study that aren't sanctioned by the state or hegemonic mm-hmm. society. Like you don't, Kaz didn't go to school after he was nine, right? Right. And I think most of the, or a lot of the other characters that we see too, Inej, um, Jesper, I think is the one who's the most, no, maybe like Nina and Matthias are also like educated in the traditional sense, but that doesn't, having that education versus not doesn't really affect their ability to like be effective in the world. Right, right. Or we see it, which I know we'll talk about later with Wylan, who has had an enormous amount of schooling, but he can't read. So we'll talk about that later. And that's obviously not to say that um, Wylan is not a useful part of the group. He is very smart, very intelligent, and he makes bombs, which is pretty cool. He's like a chemist. He is. <laughs> but obviously we see like the differentiation and like their skill sets are different, even though Wylan had a lot of schooling and Kaz didn't. Like Kaz is very like he he's like making all these plans and stuff. He's like scheming all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. I think that like Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom in particular are a really fruitful foundation for examining the difference between labor and capital. So it takes a so labor is like it takes a lot of work to if you're making minimum wage like make a hundred dollars right and so the work it takes to turn ten dollars into a hundred dollars is a lot especially when you're comparing to what it takes to turn like a million dollars into ten million dollars or ten million dollars into a hundred million dollars because thanks to compounding interest, dividend reinvestment, other economic factors I'm like uneducated about and also like don't really care about it. You just like let your money sit there. And if you have a lot of it, it becomes even bigger. So like just the fact that capital exists, like makes it multiply and it just accumulates in the system that we have. And it doesn't require actual labor in order to create wealth Mm -hmm. and so the billionaires that we have like today or like Jan Venek any of this merchant council or whatever would the fact that they have money justify it's like it's such circular reasoning and such like bullshit that when you like try and actually figure out the why behind it the logic completely falls apart I don't know at least in the U.S. capital is taxed at a lower rate than wages for labor so um, I recommend the Netflix explained episode about billionaires that explains this very well. And I think this labor versus capital distinction helps explain why rich people can gamble without consequences or actually with immense benefits. It's like why, you know, companies like Amazon pay nothing in federal income tax versus you and me pay a lot more than the like two graduate students making barely any money pay a lot more in federal income tax than an enormous like globalized company that has made billions and billions and billions of dollars in profit. Another way that we can understand, or I guess Kaz provides us with another way of understanding where this sort of like entitlement to power comes from in the system that the novel explores. And he says, when a man spends that much coin, he thinks he's earned the right to do whatever he wants. And so that like, Mm -hmm. that is how power works in a class system. 
for sure. Like just by having virtue, by virtue of having a lot of money, that means that you, or it like almost becomes its own justification for abuse of power. And we see that with Bannock and I guess the other merchers seem like fine. Like they're obviously upset with like, obviously Van Eck didn't really do those things, but like with the schemes that Kaz has put into place, but we do see that Van Eck thinks he could get away with all of these things. And Kaz and the dregs who have no money are the ones who actually get away with it. They're the ones who can do whatever they want. Cause they, they're like the consequences are not bigger for them, but they're like, like what's the worst that can happen? They're, they'll have to leave Ketterdam for as, whereas for Van Eck, like he, I guess goes to prison, which like I don't agree with, but <laughs> you know. I think we could just close the billionaire discussion by saying billionaires should not exist. I also think that there's like a class, there's a class aspect to no mourners, no funerals. This sort of mm-hmm. dregs luck slash like greeting slash goodbye or whatever you want to call it. And I think it, it I mean, it's tied to the conditions of death and mourning, as the words themselves say, right? So that, like, only... I think this... I can't remember who explains it. It might have been on Black Veil. But they explain that only the rich had, like, the resources to have burials, right? And so... Or or to have anyone at their funeral. So, like, who society actually mourns and grieves for? They stopped burying people in Ketterdam after the plague. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the rich people would, like, have funerals in the country. So. Yeah. Versus. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. Versus the poor are just buried. or Not buried. They're burned. Yes. But, like, mm, like in a mass sense, like, all people who are dead would just get burned together. Mm-hmm. Their bodies would be burned together. Which is, like, weird and gross to think about, I guess. So, sorry, listeners, if you didn't want to talk about, listen to us talk about what you do with dead bodies, I guess. Yeah. You can compost <laughs> um, them now. Fun fact. I know. I am I just want to do whatever is most, like, environmentally friendly. Probably not burning and dumping the ashes into the ocean like they do in Ketterdam. No, maybe, yeah, I don't think burning is very environmentally friendly because, but yeah, it's hard because I also don't want to be a burden to whoever has to pay for these things, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Because funerals are expensive and I don't want kids, so who knows who's going to even take care of that? Ooh, that's That's a whole other discussion. Ew, yeah. (laughs) Maybe I'll die first. You can take care of it for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to have to, you're going to have to make a will. Yeah, I know. I have a book. I need to fill it out. (laughs) Yeah, we've gotten completely off topic. Anyways, yes, definitely some class issues here. But we also do see some mourning taking place in the dregs when Matthias dies, which I thought was interesting. I did not think that would happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I I feel like we don't really see Kaz participate, but he's kind of like not emotionally invested in Matthias or most of the dregs, I think. Yeah. Maybe just Matthias. I don't really know what I'm trying to get to with this like whole idea about no mourners, no funerals, but because it doesn't mean like I'm not sad that you died or like no grief or no connection. Right. But it does. It, it's basically like a, a revindication of not being rich, I guess. I think so, because 
if you can't have a funeral, then there's no one, like there's not that outward display of mourning that I think normally, usually takes place Mm -hmm. for most people in a funeral setting. And especially because the dregs are, I mean, as their name implies, you know, outcasts of society Mm -hmm. and basically people that society has already deemed as useless. And so like they wouldn't grieve them anyway. And so I think it's like a revindication of that identity position. Yeah. It's kind of like the break a leg thing, I guess, a little bit in that you say that, and I don't know where that phrase comes from, but you say it as a way to be like, hopefully we don't need this to happen. Like, I hope you don't die. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They're doing dangerous things because they are positioned as the lower class people. Mm -hmm. And if they were positioned as like the upper class people this wouldn't be necessary for them to do because they would have the power right are you ready to talk about gender this wasn't gender isn't like the a main access or axis of conflict in the novel necessarily not in the same way that class and ability are i don't think or race even but Kirch does have an oppressive patriarchal structure. We especially see this with Alice and how she's grown to grown up, grown up, <laughs> grown up in, um, she's the product essentially of this really patriarchal society and how it infantilizes women and makes, they are made to be like, think of themselves as, having limited amounts of power or use or like worth in society. And I'm using these like, and I mean worth in like quite literally the capitalistic sense, right? Cause they don't like make as many deals. We don't see any merchers who are women. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree. Cause we also see it with um, Wyland's mom who somehow Van Eck is able to put all of his, her, possessions into his name and take those things from her and then um, institutionalize her with no repercussions and hide the fact that she's alive so I think we see it with both I guess with Wyland's mom and his stepmom the ways in which women are seen as second-class citizens Mm -hmm. and it's also curious to me the how they're both they're second class citizens and yet their ability to produce an heir, like their reproduct their reproductive capacity is basically the only is like one of the driving forces behind Van Eck's pursuit of wealth in the first place. He all talks about like making a legacy and passing right. it down. So he treats them treats these women like shit and at the same time, without their ability to have children he doesn't have a reason for or that's where he looks to for his reasons for building his fortune right right but I don't I he says that but I don't believe that I think it's more selfish than that Mm. yeah we see Nina uh weaponizing her femininity which I mean she flirts and manipulates with greedy men we see her at the like at the beginning of the machinations of this scheme to get um Inej back with Cornelis Smeet the lawyer <laughs> and it, it 
to me reminded me of like a by any means necessary like if that is what needs to happen then that's what you do if that's what you're using then or if those are the resources at your disposal then that's what you have to use and I think this is even more interesting given that Nina is also disabled a disabled character in a certain sense and we'll talk about this in the next section but often disabled individuals have their sexuality erased completely and we actually see Matthias doing this to her for most of the novel until they make out in the Ravkin embassy or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Matthias and his views are trash. I think I've already said I don't really like him as a character. But yeah, the way he treats Nina is also really like infantilizing at certain points where he's like, maybe, you know, he wants her to do things his way, even though she is strong on her own. She doesn't need Matthias around. It's very frustrating. I just liked the fact that the novel was like, no, she's disabled, but she's also super sexy and not afraid of her sexuality either. Let's go to ability, disability, body minds, etc. You mentioned this a few minutes ago, but Wyland's mother, Maria Hendricks, is diagnosed with, quote, hysteria and persecution disorder mm-hmm. and then institutionalized without her consent consent by her spouse and has all of her like estate taken like stolen from her right and her child yes and tell everyone thinks she's dead yeah so what van eck is able to do is pathologize her and in a way that's super believable and legible to the other institutions, I guess, within at operating within Kirch. And then that means that he can, she's disposable to him. And some of that I'm not sure is partly due to her gender. She's a woman. So obviously disposable. He just gets a new younger wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly, but I don't know if this story actually deals with like talks about, if she had mental health issues, like I don't know the story or if they were made up by Van Eck. I think that they were made up. Okay. That's what I thought, but I wasn't sure. He makes them up because of her, what he sees as like a deficiency on her end, which is Wyland's inability to read. Yeah. So I guess that's the other thing is like weaponizing mental health issues is a lot of what's going on here with, um, Maria Hendricks. Totally. Van Eck is like a terrible person. He's so <laughs> terrible. He's so bad. We also see Nina dealing with addiction to what is it called? Param. Jerda Param. Yeah, Jerda Param. Um, which is a lot. Like, we get a lot of instances of seeing her deal with going through the withdrawals and those kind of things, which I think is something we don't really get a lot of in ya books and definitely not in fantasy books so i really appreciated seeing this especially when you think about some of the things going on in the united states right now um with issues uh surrounding the opioid epidemic um which you know is also racialized totally but (laughs) um we can link to some things about some videos there's a good episode of patriot act about um the opioid epidemic but um, there's a lot going on with Nina in this story. That's very true. We see both addiction and then also like the fallout of addiction. So like the withdrawal 
we see how addiction isn't just this like monolithic experience. It's not just like the the urge to use a particular substance. It's also the um like the physical repercussions like sh- she experiences for chronic fatigue, for example. And I thought that this was the again, the flashbacks really fleshed this out, which this like I think Bardugo does this masterfully masterfully. She did it with pretty much every character where they'll be like in the middle of a big action sequence. And then it'll flash back to a moment that like gives the reader more information, like about the depth of this character and what they're going through and like their like overall personality or person development as a person. And, but it like ties back to the, like the current moment so this is for example this happens to nina and so we'll we get flashbacks of her on the boat back from jerholm right after she took the jerda perem for the first time and we see her in the throes of withdrawal and she's really emotionally abusive to matthias and the things she says are awful and um she's kind of like all over the place we see her vomiting shivering fever so we see these like her body mind experiencing this whole gamut of symptoms from the drug what'd you think about this portrayal i think it was good i don't have a lot of experience like personally or like in my peripheral relationships of people dealing with um like drug addiction so i hope that it's like a good portrayal but i i can't speak to that i did think it was interesting how it changed the way that nina's grisha power worked which i wasn't expecting for some reason she can like reanimate dead bodies now which i thought was really cool but also like kind of creepy and halloween-esque so um i was reading this book right after halloween so i was like "Ooh, like creepy vibes i (laughs) enjoy this (laughs) um so it was interesting to think about how sometimes addiction might change different parts of a person and i think sometimes you can see this in like how uh like maybe your body doesn't function the same after going through withdrawal or going through um going through addiction so i thought that was really interesting part of the story yeah i think and it's like you said earlier a more nuanced i think exploration and like a visibilization of Mm -hmm. the struggle with addiction that i haven't really seen in other fantasy books um and i also thought it was very realistic is the wrong word because we're talking about fantasy and it's apples to oranges, but right. responsible, I guess the way that the, that Bardugo portrayed Nina's fatigue and her like shifting relationship to disability slash ability within like a disabled body mind that then gains new abilities. Right. So it doesn't, it's not all black and white. It can't all um, be, it's not like, moral judgments of like good versus bad don't really hold sway here yeah and i think it's also good because we see a lot with kaz like a a um, depiction of a physical disability so it was um good to see also like an this is kind of like an invisible disability or an invisible illness that nina's going through so like people have their good and their bad days like where they will feel fine but like that doesn't you know, it's kind. Of, you know, it's kind of like the spoony me- metaphor. Like, how many spoons does Nina have today? And that mm-hmm. is going to depend on a lot of things. This connects to some of the 
to some theory I've been reading recently about like this idea of like crip time. So short of cripple and this revindic like that some disabled people are and like theorists and thinkers are taking up kind of like how queer was taken back up or Chicano was taken back up. It used to be an insult and now it's like like a reassertion of the self and through this like identity that was um, stigmatized and still is stigmatized. But um, in these theorizations, crip time isn't linear or easily measured or you can't like take it for granted. So this idea of good days versus bad days or spoons or how much emotional energy you're expending on um, thinking about how to best take care of yourself or how to take care of other people. I, I thought that like Nina is a, provides a good example for this idea. I think we also have to talk about Jesper and addiction. Um, Jesper is portrayed as being addicted to gambling And Mm -hmm. also to the adrenaline rush that comes from all of his, like, operations with the dregs, I guess. Right. But and Inej suggests that he's filling a void with gambling and fighting and that that's not really healing. And she insinuates that the him not using his power is what's creating this void that he then fills with less savory habits, shall we say. I guess this was this just serves to me like a good reminder asking like what purpose does this serve when you're distracting mm-hmm. yourself from pain which <laughs> you and I have both talked about using growing up using books as a way to do this. Yeah, it's it's it can be hard to find a like it's hard in the society we live in like with capitalism to find like quote unquote a productive thing to do when you're also like feeling like shit <laughs> slash so, all capitalism wants you to do is be productive. Yeah. So kind of part of me is like, I'm not going to be productive. I'm just going to read this book. Is that productive? I don't know. I guess that's up to the, to the reader mm-hmm. or bake a cake, um, which is productive in that then I will eat, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Yeah. It's hard because I feel bad for Jesper and I, I talked a little bit about it in the six of crows episode about how his um like his way of dealing with pain is very racialized which i didn't appreciate in either book um but i don't know it's hard because he like lost his mom and that was like his one connection to his powers so but it also turns out that he's also kind of using them all the time when he's like shooting people so i don't know it's it's kind of a mind like jesper is kind of like a mind fuck for me like i don't know what to think about jesper he's so complicated that i think mm-hmm. i could i could have like a whole book about jesper and that would be very helpful yeah <laughs> one thing i thought that's like Im- important for understanding him as a character is that like a lot of his trauma comes from his white slash non-magic dad Oh, which I can so respect. Who Totally. <laughs> which like, and he's the one telling Jesper that like, it's not a gift. It's a curse. His power, like it killed your mother. And so it's instilling this like self-hatred and fear about a character, an internal characteristic that Jesper can't change about himself. And I think that most of the novel is a journey dealing with all of that. First of all, uncovering that uncovering that, that hurt even happened to begin with. Yes. And then also like starting the process of unlearning that narrative. 
Yeah. And Jesper's like very complicated character one because of his magical abilities that his dad cannot understand, but also because he is biracial, which let me tell you what is a complicated thing all in and of itself. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure he's dealing with, you know, having the non-racialized parent be the one who parents you is very complicated. I can say from personal experience, but also like feelings of imposter syndrome and like in so many ways, especially because Jesper is constantly interacting with Nina who does have powers and is using them. He's just a very complicated character and I could probably read a whole book about Jesper. He's not like my favorite character, but he's just, there's so many like interesting things about him that I would like to know more about. We also see, um, Jenya and Kaz interact. Actually, I don't think we actually see them interact, but she helps like heal him after his, he gets like beat up or whatever. Yeah. It happens off the page. Yeah. But he, Kaz doesn't let Jenya fix his leg, which I really appreciated. And I'm sure part of this maybe relates to Bardugo who actually does use a mobility device. Um, but we don't need miracle cures. Like it's, it's a hard thing. And I know it's very complicated for both of us. Cause we're kind of like, I would love that, but also like, what does that mean? You know? Mm-hmm. So, um, but I really appreciated that. Unlike in some other stories we've read, we didn't just get like a magical miracle cure to, to a disability. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that very much. And I'm not sure that that would have, I, I think that, Bardugo's personal experience I I'm sure like inevitably affected how she like the more respectful and nuanced way that she portrays ability and disability in these novels right I can't imagine it wouldn't but I guess all disabled people see themselves differently so Mm, that's true (laughs) it's also very complicated but but I think she actually does a really good job of showing that throughout the novel that there can be different types of disability yeah and everyone's going to deal with that differently Mm -hmm. and it's not a monolith either right yes not even a little bit Mm -hmm. (laughs) like we're seeing how for the grisha it's not a monolith or like all people of color like that that cat tag as an overarching category is both useful and problematic yes yes exactly we also see cash and inej dealing with their past traumas and it was very difficult to read, but I love them both. and just want to hug them, but maybe not Kaz because he doesn't appreciate being touched by people. <laughs> so I wouldn't like ask people first before you touch them. That's a good reminder mm-hmm. to everyone, including hugs and handshakes. Yep. Um, all the things people don't appreciate it um, for different reasons. But I just really appreciated seeing how each of them have dealt with their past traumas and um. It was just a lot, but I just like made me love them all the more. Definitely. They're such like they're I think that the novel strikes a really good balance between like having the their traumatic events that they've experienced influence them as a person and who they've grown into, but it also just doesn't conf- define them completely. Right. Or limit them necessarily. And one thing I think we see both Kaj and Inej, Kaj, Kaz, Kaz and Inej um, 
manifesting is this uh, is dissociation. We see them both using dissociation as a survival tactic, especially mm-hmm. in the edge with sexual trauma. And she was talking about when she, I can't remember who she tells this story to, but about, was it to Kaz about when she finally meets someone who yeah. saw her, who was performing. And so it kind of broke the spell between she couldn't dissociate anymore Mm-hmm. when he was her client because he knew her or he thought he knew he had seen her before she he, before in her previous life as an right. acrobat and there's a really good essay by Amita Swadhin about pleasure after called um pleasure after childhood sexual abuse that grapples with these sorts of questions and it's in Adrian Marie Brown's recent book pleasure activism the politics of feeling good so I'll make sure to link to that resource <laughs> We've touched on it a lot, but um, going back to Wylan, we get a lot of books about characters who love to read, which I always appreciate, but at the same time also kind of takes me out of the book because I know it's an author writing about people who like to read. Um, but Wylan can't read, and that is such a change from the norm. I think Kaz, obviously Kaz isn't the only disabled character in the story, but I think I have some issues with the way Wylan is portrayed. And I'm not sure that his inability to read is really fleshed out and it's not given a name and something about that just seems like, I don't know, very discomforting to me about the way that Wyland's character was portrayed in particular. That you like wanted like more information about it or can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I was um, not going to name names, but I was speaking to someone who was dyslexic and talking about um, this characterization in particular. And um, they were talking about how a character not being able to read is often used as like a plot device, but not in any meaningful way. And it made me think of Wylan and his inability to read. And like, what does that add to the story? So coming from a dyslexic dyslexic perspective, I, which, you know, is something that I don't have and, and is, and is very hard to like wrap your mind around as someone who doesn't have any difficulties reading. I, it just made me like take a step back and think about why Lynn and why is he given, why is he not able to read and what does that mean to the story? So I think in talking with that person, it made me take a step back and think about the way that people who can't read are portrayed in media and books. And I think it's good that they gave Wylan, like he's very smart in specs, but not to say that reading is related to intelligence, but I think it is so wrapped up in intelligence that it, it felt a little like off to me. Hmm. Is, would we call this agraphia? Um, like the inability to recognize um, like written characters, but at the same time, Wyland does math. Yeah. So that is the complicated thing. And that's kind of what, when I was talking to the dyslexic person about, like I, they talked about how oftentimes in media dyslexia is like a joke or a person who can't read is often the butt of a joke or made out to be um, unintelligent or they have like this other ability that they're really good at and how they don't appreciate it that now obviously that's only and then, like it makes up for exactly. quote unquote and 
I so see. they found that kind of frustrating. Now they didn't read this book. This is all me telling them what this book is about. And it's only obviously one dyslexic person. So obviously also not a monolith, but thinking back to their own experiences, they didn't appreciate the way that media often portrays people who mm-hmm. can't read. Yeah. And it does seem to me that the novel is cognizant of those societal narratives, right? And that it's like commenting on them and playing with them. But that doesn't mean that the like the way that Wyland's character itself is portrayed is like devoid of problems. Yeah. So that was my issue after talking with the person, you know, people who can't read are often given like this other special ability. So in Wyland's case, like he's very good at math and he's good at science, but he can't read. So there's always like, if you don't have one kind of intelligence, you need to have something else in that place. So I can see where that would be Mm -hmm. kind of like, um, like conflicting, you know? Totally. Totally. So that's my feelings about Wyland and his portrayal. I just feel like very complicated about it. But it's also yeah. not a disability I have. So I also can't 100% speak to that either, you know? Totally. Yeah. I think that's, I'm glad that you brought this up because it transitions into some, like a little bit more of a broader way that we can approach the discussion of disability through these novels. I think that like Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom are like helpful for discussing these two different models of disability. So the social model versus the medical model of disability. And this is shout out to my disability studies seminar where I've been learning this stuff this semester. Um, So the medical model is the dominant cultural narrative. People have what doctors would diagnose as certain impairments, whether that's cognitive, physical, or otherwise, or if they're like not neurotypical. And then these differences are pathologized they are diagnosed and then patients are made to undergo treatment to cure slash correct what's wrong. And these are massive air quotes around the word wrong with them. So that's how this medical model works. And we can, I mean, just by describing it, you can probably see how problematic that is. And then the social model of disability says that the ways we move through the world are determine how we experience disability And so you can have an impairment that isn't necessarily disabling, depending on the context. So the context is 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 huge. And so accommodations and accessibility can radically shift the experience of disablement, for example. And Kaz, Inej, Nina and Wylan, I would say, could all be considered disabled in their own ways, maybe Jesper, too. Um, And then but when they operate in community with one another, I guess the context of their interactions, the, like the, they're not experiencing disablement necessarily in the same way as when they're out in the rest of Kerch or the rest of Ketterdam interacting with like the normies, you know? So their impairments aren't necessarily, aren't necessarily disabling in their context when they're like working together and scheming and doing all their plans. Cause we see them, they're actually like incredibly like capable. And the novel, I think knows that that is surprising to the people with power in mm-hmm. the book, right? Like Van Eck or the traditional power structures. But I think as the readers, we've known that they're powerful and capable the whole time. Yeah. It's like another way of like looking at them as a group because 
Kaz always talks about, and Kaz in particular, because his disability is visible, talks about how people underestimate him because they see him using a cane as opposed to when he's with the rest of the dregs. Like, they know, like, maybe Kaz is the most powerful of all of them. So they're like, don't fuck around with Kaz. Like, <laughs> he's not the he's not the person to, like, mess around with. But out in society, no one would think twice about underestimating him. Mm-hmm. Like it's a mil- mobility device and it's a weapon. Right. And it's like a social statement. And, you know, it's a part of his identity. And, right? It's not just one or the other. I would really recommend, in in addition to the um, resources that Kelly has talked about, uh, if you're on Twitter, following Coffee Spoonie on Twitter. Um, totally. They talk a lot about visible versus invisible disability, good days and bad days. And, and they do a lot of disability work, which I really appreciate and love reading what they've been writing. So yeah, follow them on Twitter. I think we can understand or read Jan van Eck as like a metaphor maybe for the state that sees accommodations for disabilities slash accessibility as like a drain or a waste of resources. So this like hegemonic narrative that um, they're asking that that people with disabilities are asking for things that they don't need or they're asked or that they're like asking at all rather than entitled to this shit. And this is a prevalent narrative that we see in our empirical world. And let's not forget, it's also racialized. So an example of that would be like the welfare queen bullshit that Reagan and his administration weaponized. Yeah. And we, I mean, we see this even in like um, school settings where they don't meet people's accommodations or they try to find workarounds because they're expensive um, when really people are entitled to those accommodations and... Or like white children will get accommodations and black children will get expelled or disciplinary action. There's a really good article and I'll have to try and find it and link to it in the show notes about um, the uh, public school system in the United States attempting to hold back teachers from helping make diagnoses. Now, I'm not sure that public school teachers are able to make those diagnoses but um like they're not even allowed to bring it up with parents because the schools can't afford to meet the accommodations which is actually super important that kids have those accommodations so they can Mm -hmm. be at the same starting point as the rest of their class so it's really frustrating the last thing that i'll um, comment about for ability, disability, illness, whatever, is the um, all the history of the plagues that we see in Kirch and epidemics. So the Queen's Lady Plague was the most recent one, and it profoundly changed the entire country, right? we I can't remember how much of the population they say died, but it was a lot. It was like a lot. And that's when they started, the, they changed their burial practices. They have like, we see the protocol, the Kaz and company exploiting the plague protocols too at the end. Um, but even then we see that like, it's a huge threat that it's they're not equipped to deal right. with in Ketterdam. Well, and like people are so afraid of it. Like the, the doctor is like, I got to go into hiding ASAP. <laughs> I'm like, 
what the fuck <laughs> use are you <laughs> yeah i read i watched another episode of explained that's about like epidemics mm-hmm. and how profoundly unprepared we are for them so there's just like that little ray of sunshine to yeah. think about but there's also definitely race and class are determining factors for who dies and how versus who is able to survive. Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about sexuality, asexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take some liberties and do some shipping of our own. We're going to start with Matthias and Nina. Boo. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really get it. I see... I could like maybe see the charm maybe but I don't I don't know Nina clearly is happy with Matthias but and they have some good banter I think yeah they really do it was I think particularly Nina has good banter because she's the funny one Matthias is just there it's hard because Matthias is like coming from such a patriarchal society and like he just wants to like take Nina and like wrap her up in the feared and clothes and like turn her into like a a breeding source that i'm just like oh like nina why do you like this dude (laughs) it is a little it is strange yeah very strange but maybe she'll like find someone new and king of scars someone better and like not so terrible yeah maybe we'll see we also get some not so great father son relationships in this book dads are trash we see <laughs> yeah we see it with wylan and jan van Eck, obviously i don't even know how much more we can say about that like jan van Eck is a garbage parent and a garbage person we also see a problematic father-son dynamic with colm and jesper but colm is like well-intentioned and i think actually loves his child even if he has hurt him yeah don't trust dads. That's that's what I took from this story. <laughs> Everyone needs therapy. Apparently. Oh my god! Yes, yes. And I do think that especially Jesper's near Jesper's like character arc shows this. Well, I guess Wyland's too. The coming to terms with like learning who your parents really are and having like the veil lifted, you know, about who we thought they are and the excuses we were maybe making for them, and that some of those relationships, when the like dust settles, are like worth uh, repairing and like expanding beyond and some of them are not for sure friendship and camaraderie and chosen family are just also important in this novel and I love that so so much yeah it's a really good friendship story I know so we don't get that much romance in the story but I really like the coming together of all the you know all of the dregs and like their stories and their interactions with each other are just some of my favorites they just meet each other where they're at and accept each other which i think is it's just so radical we have two slow burns yeah so we have jesper and wylan who finally like kiss and it's very exciting i guess i like the two of them together because i feel like they just go you know like they just fit and then we have Kaz and Inej who are both dealing with like all the shit, like all the things. 
and it's like I don't know I really like them together I really like them apart I just Kaz and Inez are like my fave I don't know I think they're just dealing with so much and I like that they have like this like little spot of like hope in each other Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called Kill Your Darlings. I thought Bardugo slayed in this novel and in this series, especially with writing the multiple point of view chapters. I thought this was much more effective than the Grishaverse, which is all from Alina's perspective, the first person perspective. I think it helps, obviously, that all of these different POV chapters are from complex and vibrant characters. And I haven't read Ninth House yet, but I think this is her best. The best that we've read for the podcast anyway. Yeah. And I think it's really difficult because sometimes if you get more than a couple POVs, certain characters will sound so similar. So she did a really good job of each character has like their very own voice and it doesn't sound like another character. I really appreciated that. I think she did a fantastic job. Like, I don't know how she did it. <laughs> it was, I, I thought that was incredible. And it was, there were like cliff endi- cliffhangers at the end of each POV chapter, but they weren't as like, I don't know, gut-wrenching or like abrupt as, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but it's just like a different tonal and rhythm that like Saba Tahir's novels have, for example. It makes me super excited. Now that I finished Six of Crows series, I'm so excited for the show, even though I'm I I want the show, but I don't want any of the Grishaverse stuff. <laughs> <laughs> just the Six of Crows things. I forget the actor who's playing Kaz, but he's just like perfect in my mind of what Kaz looks like, so I'm very excited. Obviously, cuz he's my aesthetic. Speaking of Kaz, it was so long before there was a Kaz chapter. Like, I'm reading, (laughs) reading, reading. I'm like, when the fuck are we going to get Kaz? I understand that it's really difficult. It would be really difficult to have a ton of Kaz because of the large cast. But I was waiting for what felt like forever. And then it seemed like they were few and far between, which was very sad for me personally. But I guess it's hard because, like, every reader is going to have a different favorite character. Like, not everyone's going to love Kaz as much as I do. I'm not sure. I think the <laughs> I think a lot of the bookstagram community would agree with you. Yeah, probably. Which speaking of Kaz, uh he's so ruthless, but also seems to do ruthless things in like the perfect way. Like in the beginning of the story, there's that little girl and he's like talking about how he's going to murder her and her family <laughs> if she And her dogs? Like, and her dogs if Rude. she doesn't do what he wants. And it's like one of those things that in real life we would hate a person like that. But in a book, in this character, it's just so like perfectly ruthless that I'm just like, I love you and I shouldn't, but I do. (laughs) (laughs) So when you come at me for my problematic views, (laughs) let's just keep this in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Like don't in real life, don't like these kind of people. It's fine (laughs) in, in, in books. Kelly cannot give me any shit for this because she's like. I heart the Darkling. And I all don't the know. <laughs> <laughs> so I would just like to point out, Kelly, don't come at me for this. <laughs> I agree with you, though, that like Kaz's ruthlessness is tempered with a sort of, it's not like an empty 
ruthlessness. No. It's not like for the sake of exerting power or for the sake of inflicting harm. It's not to say that like just because you have a justification behind the bad shit that you do, it means that it's like, okay. Yeah. But it's also hard because he like tells Pekka Rollins that he like buried his kid alive and he didn't really do it. But he wants them to know that he could have if he wanted to. Right. And that is the kind of ruthlessness. I'm like, you want people to know you could do something bad, even if you didn't choose to. And I think that that that. gets to the heart of what power is for Kaz. And it's very much his like his reputation, his information gathering. Well, Inej's information gathering. And then also the like weaponization of a persona. And like the stories that get told about him and and the gloves that he wears, you know, his dirty hands moniker that that is that's very much how how Kaz's power works is with words and scheming, which I think is a little bit why he's so concerned about his own feelings for Inej, because he knows that having someone you care about makes you vulnerable, like we see with Pekka Rollins. So we do see him kind of like fighting these feelings he has for her even though I think they kind of come around in the end. Well, especially like, I mean, come on. He brought her parents over from Ravka. So I think I don't, it's hard because like their relationship is going to be like a, not like a normal relationship. Like she's obviously going off to kill all the slavers and Kaz is going to stay in Ketterdam, I assume. So Mm -hmm. they're going to have like a long distance relationship. Yeah. Question. Could we see Kaz and, Inej, Kaz and Inej as fitting somewhere on the ace spectrum? Like really only attracted to one another because they know each other so well. I think so. I I think so. I'm Kaz talks like a little bit about having feelings for some other girl, which isn't to say that people who are ace don't have <laughs> feelings. <laughs> But um, <laughs> like they can experience arousal, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. But I, yeah, I do think there's like a connection between Kaz and Inej that they don't have for other people. Mm-hmm. And that they're, they just don't seem to be interested in sex or sexuality outside of that. No, not at all. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's a good reading. A possible, possible reading. Yeah, possible reading. <laughs> We also see parents as a liability in this story. I guess only in the case if you care about your parents and what happened to them. <laughs> but Jesper is like, yeah. Speaking of ruthless. Speaking of ruthless. <laughs> Jesse's heartless. We got it. Um, <laughs> um, but Jesper is like very worried. Like his dad is used as a ploy to bring him somewhere, like bring him out of hiding. Um, and yeah, your parents can be a liability as much as anyone else if you care about them (laughs) i think that i mean it's those two points that you made are very connected right the fact that like caring about other people makes you vulnerable create can you can either see that as a strength or a weakness and it's probably both and both and and maybe says something about me that i'm like caring about people makes you vulnerable (laughs) (laughs) yeah therapy here i come (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay so at the end of the ver- at the very end of the book Inej is going to Pekka Rollins and I don't think Kaz asked her to but she went because she loves Kaz and I really liked that what what are your thoughts I agree 
in that I don't think she did it at at Kaz's direction. Like, I think it was her way of showing she cared was like, don't like because she's not going to be there to like help get information for Kaz when she's off doing her own stuff. She's like, this is her way of helping to protect Kaz. And I like that. Absolutely. It was like heart emojis. I was like, oh, that's so sweet. Like you're you're threatening to murder someone for for the guy you love. That's real cute. (laughs) Is that your love language, Jesse? Yes. Now we know. <laughs> but only threaten to murder bad people, not like good people. <laughs> Speaking of Pekka Rollins, I'm a fan of the book, this book ending tactic that Bardugo uses. Um, we see it again in this novel. And we saw it before in the Grisha trilogy with like the specific point of views that point of view chapters with like different style and tone starting and finishing the novel. And it was Pekka Rollins this time, correct? Yeah, I don't remember how Six of Crows started, but I, I believe that. <laughs> well, I guess maybe, I don't know. I just remember, uh, maybe, maybe this is in my head. I know that like the last chapter is Pekka Rollins. Yes, that is the case for sure. Yeah. I just, it was, um, it's not a choice that we see too many authors making. Right. Um, and it, it kind of strikes me as a little bit of a signature. And I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I expected it to just end with that last Inej chapter. And I was mm-hmm. fine with that. But I also really appreciated this ending, obviously. Well, because I do think we see Pekka Rollins is kind of set up as a foil for Kaz, right? That this is who Kaz could be mm-hmm. in the future, potentially. Um, and I And I guess it was a way of ending the book without concluding it right yeah we get the impression that all of these characters are going to keep on living in this fictional world which i really like because i want to you know imagine that it continues on yeah and like hope for another book or the tv show will be really good yeah that's true recommend if you like heist stories and breaking of systems to take advantage of them like we see with kaz I really enjoyed this. I I obviously love a high story, um, but I really enjoyed this story, like the way that they take advantage of terrible systems of oppression and use them to their advantage. I really liked that. Before we end, it's time for Real Talk. Jesse, did reading this book make your perspective change in any way or did it make you interrogate a concept, system, or trend that you hadn't before? Yeah, so I kind of want to talk about Inej and the Suli idea of forgiveness. Um, she says, and I'm going to butcher this, I know it, <laughs> Mati in Shiva Yalu, this action will have no echo. It means we won't repeat the same mistakes and we won't continue to do harm on page 338. I really appreciated this look of what what forgiveness can mean um, and how it means that you will work in the future to to change what you did that hurt someone and I think I appreciated it because we so often get apologies that are I'm sorry but and so this is like a differentiation from that and so I really appreciated this idea even though part of me is a little bit like oh I'm I, I agree you can forgive people but like I'm like forgive but like never forget because I you know you can't trust people not to repeat their actions but I kind of appreciated this way of like looking at forgiveness as a way to say like I'm sorry that I've hurt you and I will actually do something to make sure I don't do it again 
Right. It reads to me less as forgiveness and more as like an actual model of accountability and repair. Which is why Inej says that the Suli don't have a word for I'm don't have an expression for I'm sorry, right? Right. They just they say that like this action will have no echo. Which I think is just like a, a radically respond like a much more responsible way of being accountable for your actions. And then also I think sometimes we get apologies that are like like you said, fake apologies, or even if it just says I'm sorry, it is coming from a a spot that is insisting that the other party forgive, right? It's like expecting forgiveness immediately upon giving the apology. And it doesn't seem like this, uh, like, Suli idea works that way, which I think is really refreshing. Yeah, like, it puts all of the responsibility on the part of the, like, onto the person who committed the action that required an apology as opposed to, like, yeah, because... I, I think you can apologize to people, but you cannot like expect them to always accept that. Like, Mm-mm. and that's also fine. Or even if forgiveness or acceptance does happen, it's not necessarily on the timeline of the person who caused the harm in the first place. Right. Exactly. Exactly. What about you? Rereading this series made me think about the really famous Audre Lorde quote, the, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And I first encountered these words um, in the collection of essays, This Bridge Called My Back, writings by radical women of color. And I thought that Kaz, Inej, Wyland, Jesper, Nina, Matthias, this like motley crew is a good example of Lord's quote, like they understand the master's tools, Kaz mm-hmm. and Inej in particular, understanding them, but then using, finding their own ways to work around and within and on top of and below and like fracture apart the systems of oppression in which they are all caught up. Yeah, because at every moment, I feel like we think Kaz is working within the system that like not Grisha Ketterdam has put in place like the Murcher's Council yeah and all those things but like he is like like it's hard to like because you don't see it until the very end everything come together and him be like no I didn't do that at all like it's a whole different thing that I've decided to do that doesn't work within the the societal norms Mm -hmm. it's like a way of using the force of the wheel like understanding how the wheel works and the forces at play in order to, and then slash using forces outside in order to break the wheel. Yeah. Like you kind of have to understand how it works in order to take it apart. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, that's, yeah, I like that reading. And one more thing came to mind too. This uh, Jesper pretty much sums up our entire podcast platform <laughs> in when he says you can love something and still see its flaws. It's too true. So true. Yeah, like all the books. (laughs) Love it. Thanks for listening to JK It's Magic. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Demoline. As always, we'd love to be in conversation with you, magical listener. Let us know what you think of the episode, anything we miss, or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments or by reaching out to us on Twitter or Instagram at JK Magic Pod. 
You can post or tweet about the show using the hashtag critically reading, and you can contact us via email at jkmagicpod at gmail.com. You can subscribe to JK It's Magic on the podcast app of your choice, and we'd appreciate it uh, 3,000% if you would rate and review the show and spread the word to other rad readers slash listeners out there. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can make a one-time donation on coffee. Is that how you pronounce that? <laughs> and you can also support us monthly on Patreon in exchange for minisodes, bonus apps, swag, our rad Discord channel, and much more. Kelly is recording on Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho land. Jesse is recording on Peoria, Kaskakia, Payankasha, Weya, Miami, Muscotin, Odawa, Sak, Meskwaki, Kickapoo, Potawatomi, Ojibwe, and Chickasaw land. Until next time, stay magical.